I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is an apostrophe podcast production. We regret to inform you, the Rejection Podcast. They thought a mermaid movie was such a terrible idea, they went out of their way to humiliate me. Brian Grazer. Brian Grazer says the scope of his adolescent universe existed within a radius of about three miles. His father was a lawyer in the San Fernando Valley, but Grazer says he wasn't a fancy L.A. lawyer. He mostly took on small-time cases. They never ventured out of state or even out of the valley. And though their neighborhood was just a hop, skip, and a merge onto the Hollywood freeway to La La Land, Grazer's only connection to the entertainment capital of the world was when he rode his 10-speed to the local movie theater. He says for all he knew, he could have been in Kansas. But within that three-mile radius lived someone very special to Grazer, a four-foot-nine woman named Sonia Schwartz, or, as she was known to Grazer, Grandma Sonia. And all too often, Grazer would go over to her house after school feeling disheartened and lonely. He'd sheepishly show her his assignments bleeding red ink and his report cards covered in D's and F's. He said school was horrible. It wasn't a safe space. He was constantly reprimanded and called stupid. In fact, every morning he'd feel an overwhelming sense of dread and anxiety. He said his father wasn't around enough to help and his mother thought the only logical solution was to enroll her son in a grueling tutoring program five days a week. But nothing worked. He said there was always a show of hands in class, and his was never one of them. He'd learned that if the teacher made eye contact with him, it was easiest to just look away or fake an ailment, because he knew if they asked him a question, he wouldn't know the answer. What Grazer would later find out was that he suffered from dyslexia and as a result, couldn't spell or read. But he was years away from a diagnosis. For now, all he had were failing grades, 
bruises from bullies and a profound feeling that he would amount to nothing. Except for when he visited Grandma Sonia. Sonia told her grandson that he was special. The other kind of special. Even when all evidence pointed to the contrary, she would tell him he was not only going to find his way through, he was going to thrive. Her favorite adage was, think big, be big. Grandma Sonia's house became a safe space to take a break from constant anxiety and be himself. And himself asked a lot of questions. One time he asked his grandmother, what went faster, a car or a bee? And instead of making him feel silly, she answered to the best of her ability and praised him for his critical thinking. So when he was picked on at school, or cut from the team, or failed yet another assignment, she would tell him that it was going to be okay, because he had a superpower that was unique to him and him alone. He was curious. With encouragement from Grandma Sonia, Grazer's confidence levels started to rise. He worked hard at reading and spelling and says he used his curiosity to talk to his teachers for the first time and even challenge some of his grades. In high school, he managed to get his GPA up high enough to apply to the University of Southern California, where he was accepted. It was a massive accomplishment. But as he walked onto campus that first day in 1970, he realized he never felt more like an outcast. Now he was 25 miles from home, and as he looked around, it appeared that everyone else was very smart and very rich. He said it was like they all spoke a foreign language. They were mostly the offspring of high-powered Hollywood hotshots. Oh, and they all had fancy cars. So Grazer decided to alter his identity. He was sick of not fitting in, and finally he had the chance to quite literally step out of his three-mile comfort zone and reinvent himself. Maybe he too could be the rich, smart guy with the fascinating parents. So the first thing Grazer did was get a nighttime job at the Howard Johnson's Hotel near campus and saved every dime he made until he could afford himself a swanky car. A Porsche Targa. The second thing he did was tell everyone in his class that his father was a fancy, big-time, famous attorney. He said he turned his dad from a middle-class, piddly lawyer from the Valley into F. Lee Bailey. He reframed his identity, his life, and his attitude. And it worked. Soon he was Mr. Popularity. But there was one thing he couldn't fake. His dyslexia followed him to college. Grazer's difficulty identifying speech sounds made giving presentations a serious challenge. But he didn't shy away from it. Instead, he decided to confront the issue head on and enroll himself in a public speaking course. It was embarrassing, but he wanted to learn. 250 students took that particular course. And one day after class, the professor pulled Grazer aside. He put his arm around him and gave him one piece of advice. He said, drop out of USC and recommended vocational school instead. Over his four years of college, Grazer says he learned a few truths about himself. One, he was determined. He wasn't going to let his social class, his learning disability, or any teacher tell him that he wasn't good enough. Sonia would have none of that. Two, he realized that his dyslexia made it incredibly difficult to discern specifics, but that that gave him the incredible gift of zooming out to a 30,000-foot view of a project or idea. So he became what he calls a big-picture guy. And three, it gave him people skills. He made friends, negotiated his way to an A, and started looking people in the eye. 
But with commencement looming, Grazer found himself staring into the quarter-life crisis abyss that plagues so many graduates. At the end of the day, despite his newfound persona, he really didn't have a wealthy parent or major connection that would hand him a corner-adjacent office and the keys to a company car. His attorney father wasn't handing him a gig for the meantime, let alone the gig of a lifetime. But still yet, a directionless grazer decided to go with what he knew. He'd apply to law school. Realistically speaking, he didn't think he would pass the bar. And if he did, he probably wouldn't make it through the first year. But it was a direction and a clean way to dodge the inevitable dreaded question, so what are your plans after college? And soon it was official. The dean at USC gave Grazer a handshake and a diploma. And on the first day of his postgraduate summer, Grazer was sitting in what he calls his junky apartment complex when he overheard a conversation out his open window that piqued his curiosity. Two or three law school students were standing outside his window, chatting about the best summer jobs they'd ever had. So Grazer slid over to the window and closed the curtains so he could really press his ear up against the glass without them seeing. One of the guys said he'd just left the, quote, cushiest, easiest position imaginable as a law clerk in the legal department at Warner Brothers. Grazer didn't know what Warner Brothers was. Remember, he said he may as well have grown up in Kansas. But he was very intrigued by the word cushy. He'd never heard cushy used to describe a job before. So Grazer kept eavesdropping. The guy went on to say that the pay was decent, included a corporate car, and required next to no actual work, and that he had landed the job through a higher-up at Warner Brothers named Peter Connect. So Grazer immediately walked over to the phone and decided to connect with Connect. He dialed 411 and asked for the Warner Brothers legal department. When he got through to Peter Connect, Grazer introduced himself. He told him he was a recent graduate and soon-to-be law student looking for a summer job as a law clerk. Connect was floored. He told Grazer that the timing was wild. They'd just lost their previous student clerk. Grazer pretended it was fate, and Connect invited him to come to his office for an interview at 3 p.m. By 3.15, Grazer was hired. He was given a tiny office with no windows, a wee little desk, a wee little phone, and a constant flow of papers to file. He made $5 an hour, and soon he got his first corporate perk, a red Pontiac Bonneville. Most days, he did absolutely nothing. The stranger outside his window was right. It was rather cushy. By the second week at his cushy new gig, Grazer was given his first major assignment to deliver Warner Brothers legal papers to an actor. But not just any actor, someone Grazer called the biggest star in the world, Mr. Warren Beatty. Beatty was living at the Beverly Wilshire at the time. So Grazer hopped in his Pontiac and drove across town to the famed hotel. When he got there, he was greeted by an assistant in the lobby who asked him for the papers. And out of nowhere, Grazer made the split-second decision to fib. He told her that he was instructed to hand those papers to Beatty directly. She didn't believe him, but he pressed on. He told her that if the papers didn't go straight from his hands to Beatty's, the important official documents would be invalidated. The assistant was skeptical, so she called down a second assistant who also gave Grazer the rundown. But determined to meet Beatty, Grazer stood his ground and eventually found himself in the elevator with the penthouse button illuminated. When the doors opened to Beatty's suite, Grazer realized he had a choice. He could hand Beatty the papers and head right back down the elevator. Or he could take the opportunity to strike up a conversation. But what did he have in common with a movie star to ignite a dialogue? So he decided to ask a question. That question led to another question, 
which led to an hour-long conversation, much to Beatty's assistant's chagrin. It was amazing, and as Grazer headed back to his windowless office, he realized that maybe Grandma Sonia was right. He could use his curiosity as a superpower to forge connections. Soon, he started making conversations with his colleagues at Warner Brothers. He started chatting with higher-ups that passed by his office. And eventually, he figured out how he could use his position in the legal department to access the names and phone numbers of network executives, agents, directors, and authors, and worked up the courage to cold call them. He didn't know exactly what his endgame was, but he made a point to meet one new person every single day and really listen to what they had to say. He was learning a lot and slowly demystifying the mysterious business that is show. He had espresso with the writer of The Exorcist and mimosas with the agents of some of Hollywood's top brass. It was fantastic. And that's when he realized he was so never going to law school. As it turned out, his skills at getting into a room would make him the perfect movie producer. Grazer told his boss at Warner Brothers that he was going to defer law school because he was enjoying his position and wanted to stay on a little longer. So for another 18 months, he used company resources to get in front of fancy people, including Mel Brooks, and one day, a man named Lou Wasserman. Wasserman was the head of Universal at the time. Grazer called Wasserman's assistant and told him he wanted to talk to him because he was fascinated by his career. But when he arrived at Wasserman's office, it didn't go like the others. There was no espresso, no mimosas. Instead, Wasserman stopped him in his tracks. Grazer got the feeling Wasserman could sense that he was a bit of a smooth talker. Then Wasserman walked over to his desk, pulled out a number two pencil and a legal pad, and put them in each of Grazer's hands. And he said, put the pencil to the paper. It'll have greater value than its separate parts. Grazer was stunned for a moment until it occurred to him what Wasserman was saying. Clearly Grazer had the gift of getting into people's offices and starting conversations, but he didn't own anything and had nothing tangible to offer. The manufacturing of leverage was useless without the manufacturing of ideas. So Grazer put that number two pencil to the yellow legal pad. And in addition to meeting a new person every day, he started writing down a new idea for a movie script every day. One was called Night Shift. It took place in the New York City morgue. And another was called Wet. He'd gotten the idea for wet after meeting his wife. He said she was on the beach in a bathing suit and it was love at first sight. And he wondered, what if a guy meets a mermaid and has to give up everything to be with her? Hmm. Everything at Warner Brothers was going swimmingly until Grazer was fired. As it turns out, You can't work as a law clerk if you never have and never really plan on going to law school. So Grazer found himself collecting unemployment. He faced rejection after rejection from every job he applied to. Suddenly his superpower wasn't getting him into the room for an entire year. Hold that thought. We'll be right back. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com spoken today. Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. 
It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Grazer made a new plan. When his curiosity wasn't enough, he'd have to lean into Wasserman's advice and focus all his time and energy on creating something other than his personality to sell. He continued to refine his screenplay for Wet and also started working on made-for-TV movies to cast a wider net. He landed a job as an agent in the meantime, but says he couldn't sell other people's ideas because he didn't believe in them. So he knew the only way in was to land a meeting with someone influential and sell one of his own. A woman named Deanne Barkley was a vice president at NBC at the time, and she was what Grazer describes as a powerhouse. He knew if he could just get a meeting with Barkley and somehow convince her to buy one of his ideas, he'd be in. So Grazer called and called and called but could never get a meeting. Three months went by and he still couldn't crack Barclay's assistant, but he wouldn't take no for an answer and eventually got himself penciled in. Grazer arrived at their meeting and greeted Barclay. She had a beautiful office, even complete with a birdcage. But as they started chatting out of the corner of his eye, Grazer saw the bird in her birdcage fall from its perch. It died, right then and there. Grazer then had the unpleasant job of having to tell Barkley, so he offered to help her bury the bird. They put it in a pencil box and had a little funeral in the green space outside her office. Together, they mourned the bird, then laughed at the absurdity of the situation. And before he knew it, she had bought two of Grazer's TV ideas for $2,500 a pop. Barclay later told the New York Times she saw four or five young hopefuls a day, and she only remembered the ones that made her laugh. With that boost, Grazer was on his way. He first landed a gig at Warner Brothers, where he got two TV movies produced and those projects led to a cushy new home at Paramount Television. Suddenly, Grazer was making the medium bucks and tasked with pitching ideas for television movies to networks. But over the next nine months, seven out of his eight ideas were rejected. And he started getting nervous about losing this job too. Then one day, he peered out the window of his office and saw someone who looked familiar It was Richie Cunningham. Grazer got all starstruck and excited, so he walked over to the hallway and called out his name, his real name, Ron Howard. Howard was a bit freaked out by the advance, so he pretended not to hear Grazer and kept walking. Howard had starred in The Andy Griffith Show and American Graffiti and had just left his iconic role on Happy Days. And now, he was venturing into directing TV movies. 
As a budding producer trying to sell TV movies, Grazer knew Howard was the perfect new person to meet that day. So Grazer called Howard's office, introduced himself as the crazy guy who just yelled at him in the hall, and asked for a meeting. Howard said though he'd been in the industry since he was a kid, he was pretty introverted and didn't know how to play the game. But he accepted, and Grazer took Ron Howard out for his very first grown-up lunch meeting. As they finished off their meals, the pair realized they had one very important thing in common. They were both in television, yet Howard wanted to be a theatrical movie director and Grazer wanted to be a theatrical movie producer. Grazer said he instantly felt an innate goodness about Howard. Plus, he had the credentials. And Howard saw an energetic, extroverted master communicator in Grazer, who could probably get them in front of the right people. So the pair decided to bet on each other and join forces. Grazer told Howard that he had two movie ideas. One was a script about a mermaid. The other was a comedy about a, quote, call girl ring run out of the New York City morgue called Night Shift. Howard was interested in both, but wanted to start with Night Shift. He figured an R-rated movie would inject a little much-needed danger into Richie Cunningham's squeaky clean reputation. Grazer had put together the bones of the Night Shift screenplay, but they needed actual screenwriters. So Howard contacted two writers he'd worked with on Happy Days, Lowell Gans and Mark Mandel. They were thrilled about the opportunity, but they'd never written a movie before. Grazer had assembled a crack team of a director, producer, and a pair of writers, all of whom had zero experience in motion pictures. But they pitched the script to a film studio under Warner Brothers called The Lad Company on a Friday. And by Monday, they'd sold their first movie. Michael Keaton, Shelley Long, and Henry Winkler, aka The Fonz, were cast in the leads. And in 1982, Night Shift was released. Grazer and Howard drove around Los Angeles to see if there were any lines at movie theaters. There weren't many, but the comedy ended up doing a very comfortable $21 million at the box office. Not bad for their first film. Suddenly, Brian Grazer was a movie producer, and Richie Cunningham was Ron Howard. With the success of Night Shift, Grazer was quick to slide his mermaid movie idea back under Howard's nose. After all, Grazer had written Wet before Night Shift and was passionate about the story. So they started looking for a studio, but Grazer's script as it stood wasn't getting any bites. The way he had originally written it, the movie took place almost entirely underwater and it was a fantasy from the perspective of a beautiful mermaid in looks and in spirit, who meets a boy. But studio after studio passed. They said it was a terrible idea. Mermaids don't sell movie tickets. Grazer said Hollywood is a risk-averse town. They like sure things, and a mermaid movie was a gamble. Of course, this was before the 1989 animated movie, The Little Mermaid. So Grazer took the script to United Artists, a distribution agency that champions independent producers. And still, it was rejected. But Grazer thought UA could be a good fit. So he called again and was rejected. So he called again and was rejected. So he called again. And this time, the woman said, Grazer, I throw you out the door and you come back in the window. I throw you back out the window and you come in down the chimney. I'll say it again. I do not want your mermaid movie. Grazer said when he believes in something, he'll never let it go. But Howard wasn't so confident. He thought the script was a little bumpy, 
a little awkward, and it could use some help. So he recruited Gans and Mandel, who had co-written the screenplay for Night Shift with Grazer, and asked them to take a look. Well, they didn't like it either. So they massaged it and slowly transformed it into something a little less fantasy and a little more romantic comedy. Instead of the mermaid's point of view, they told the story through the boy's point of view and brought most of the plotline above sea level. And the name changed from wet to splash. Howard was happy with the way it turned out, so they kept shopping it around, but they weren't making any waves. Grazer said it wasn't just that people said no, they made sure to tell him what a moronic idea it was. It felt like they had been rejected a thousand times and every rejection came with a piece of unsolicited humiliation. Then Grazer had a thought. It was time to invoke his superpower. Grazer realized he had a choice. He could get frustrated and quit because nobody got his movie. Or he could be willing to be self-aware and curious about what wasn't working. So he started to treat each of his splash pitch meetings like he did his endeavor to meet a new person each day with questions. Because he says there's a lot of information in a no if you're willing to listen. One studio said the guy giving up his life on land for the mermaid at the end of the movie seemed too unrealistic. To which Grazer laughed. It was a mermaid movie. The whole thing was inherently unrealistic. But as for every other studio, it quickly became clear to Grazer that every no was for the same reason. People seemed to be stuck on the mermaid of it all. They weren't rejecting the core of the story, just its wrapping paper. The mermaid was merely a vessel for what was ultimately a love story. And that love story would tell viewers that nobody can tell you who to love. So Grazer reframed his pitch from a mermaid-centric fantasy to a romance with a universal human message. And he went back to the studios who had rejected him. He said the answers were still no, but slightly less emphatic. Then eventually, after months and months, the new script with the new pitch landed them back at the Lad Company, who had taken a flyer on the filmmaking duo for Night Shift. They saw potential in the story and agreed to take on the project. Finally. But before anyone could pop the champagne, they got some disconcerting news. Another mermaid movie was in production at another studio. And this one was loaded with Hollywood ammo. They had the screenwriter behind Chinatown and Shampoo, a heavyweight director. They had Jessica Lang as the mermaid and Grazer's Beverly Wilshire buddy as the star, Warren Beatty. The splash team was in some hot water. In his book, A Curious Mind, Brian Grazer says that one mermaid movie was totally uninteresting to Hollywood. Two mermaid movies was one too many, and Hollywood was going to go with the one with the Oscar-winning team. It made the Lad Company too nervous, and they backed out of the production. So Grazer and Howard were back to square one. Grazer says rejection is a very humbling experience, but he wouldn't let anyone break him down. The other mermaid movie was Goliath and he was the little David. These studios had gone from, sorry, we don't want a mermaid movie to, sorry, we don't want to have to compete with another mermaid movie. But there was one studio they had yet to try. So they drove onto the lot and it was like a ghost town. Screenwriter Lowell Gans said it was like the land where time stood still. It looked exactly like it must have looked in the 40s, 
a little eerie, a little dusty. That lot was Walt Disney Studios. Ron Miller, the son-in-law of Walt Disney himself, was head of production, and Grazer said they had been fighting similar battles. Miller's previous decade at Disney was a string of failed films, and Grazer was coming off a string of failed pitches. So they approached Miller with their mermaid movie, and shockingly, he was in. Grazer was ecstatic. Finally, they had secured a studio, but Howard wasn't so sure it would work out. Up until the 80s, Disney had only done Disney movies, G-rated flicks. They were coming off films like the fourth installment of the Herbie Lovebug series and Gus the Field Goal Kicking Mule. Splash had suggestive scenes and adult themes, not to mention a half-naked mermaid. It was not a G-rated idea, and that made Disney nervous, which in turn made Howard nervous. He was worried they were going to sanitize the script and turn it into a mermaid movie for kids, which was not the type of movie he wanted to make. So Ron Howard quit. Grazer went full Grazer. He convinced Howard to come back to the film by promising that it wouldn't be recut by Disney, even though really, he had no idea what would happen. Then he went to Disney and told them they could rework a couple minor details, but that the mermaid could not wear a bathing suit top. It was too human. They'd have to find another way to keep her modest. And that's when Disney made a historic decision to open a subsidiary division called Touchstone Films to take on their more adult fare and hopefully pull them out of their slump. It was a mutually beneficial decision. Ron Miller was afraid corporate raiders were swarming Walt Disney Studios and knew they needed to expand their G-rated image. And Splash would be their first Touchstone picture. There was just that little problem of the other mermaid movie. But Ron Howard assured Disney that their mermaid movie would come out before the other one. In fact, he reminded them that he was 27 years old and green. He said Warren Beatty was not 27 years old. Beatty wasn't going to hustle. And Howard promised he would live on the lot until the movie was out before Beatty's. Howard said they'd do it cheaper, faster, and better. They had a budget of $11 million, 10 weeks of pre-production, and just two months to shoot. So they got to casting. Howard says the list of terrific, entertaining actors who passed on Splash was depressing. Every A-lister in the 80s rejected the lead roles, including John Travolta, Jeff Bridges, Richard Gere, Chevy Chase, Bill Murray, Dudley Moore, and Diane Lane. Screenwriter Lowell Gans said if these actors were going to take on a mermaid movie, it was going to be the one with Warren Beatty, not their discount version. But then Gans remembered an actor who had come in for a guest role on Happy Days. He had just come off a canceled television show called Bosom Buddies, and they thought he was just brilliant. His name was Tom Hanks. Ron Howard needed convincing. His assistant was a big fan of Bosom Buddies and had Howard watch three episodes to see how good Hanks really was. His comedic timing was impeccable. So Howard thought he'd make a great option for the lead character's brother, Freddie. Hanks was out of work and willing to take any audition that came his way. So he drove to the ghost town that was Disney Studios. He said the lot looked like a junior college that was underfunded. And he read for a part. Just 40 minutes later, Grazer turned to Howard and said, This is our leading man. This is Alan. Howard thought, well, nobody's going to go see a Tom Hanks movie. But if the goal was to cast the best person for the role, he was certainly the one. 
With unknown Hanks cast as the lead, it became imperative to surround him with famous faces. So Howard suggested John Candy for the role of the brother. Except he looked nothing like Tom Hanks. But Grazer didn't care. All he needed was a big name who could carry the comedy. And no one carried comedy quite like John Candy. So Candy dove straight in. Next, they needed to cast their mermaid, who picks the name Madison after seeing a street sign for Madison Avenue. Grazer had seen Daryl Hannah in Blade Runner, and he thought she had a certain quality that drew the eye. So they brought her in for an audition, and Grazer's goal of having a mermaid who was beautiful in looks and in spirit was realized. Daryl played Madison coy and simple, yet with emotional depth. But Disney said no. That didn't deter Grazer. He thought no was just a temporary point of view. So he waited for an opportunity. One day, the head of Disney was about to hop on a plane to Switzerland and be unreachable for about 14 hours. And in those 14 hours... Grazer hired Hannah. He knew in the end, everyone would come around and agree it was the right decision. John Candy suggested his fellow SCTV alum and Canadian treasure, Eugene Levy, for the role of the scientist and villain. And just like that, it was anchors away. As they started rehearsals, Hank started feeling completely out of his league. He worshipped Candy and Levy and suddenly felt himself overacting and trying to land the jokes hard enough that he'd hold his own next to the comedy heavyweights. But it wasn't working. So Howard pulled Hanks aside and told him he knew he was trying really hard to land some laughs. But Candy and Levy were there to land the laughs. He said, leave it to them. Your only job is to love the girl. The logistics of shooting a mermaid movie are not to be underestimated. Howard toyed with shooting the underwater scenes using special effects or miniatures. But then, a mermaid movie already has the unrealistic factor against it. So he decided to do everything as real as possible. The underwater scenes would be shot in the ocean, in the Bahamas. But Howard wanted to hire a stunt double for Hannah because her scenes would require wearing the heavy mermaid tail underwater, moving it in such a way that she looked like a fish, and being able to hold her breath while acting, while not letting bubbles escape from her nose or mouth. So they brought stunt doubles to an aquarium in Los Angeles and had them swim around with the mermaid tails to see who was most believable, including Daryl Hannah, so they could get the closest match to her body type. But as they watched the mermaids swim around the tank, they realized the only believable Madison was Hannah. She had been practicing her mermaid swim since she was a kid in her family pool, tying her feet together. So she had the wiggle down. She also could hold her breath for 60 seconds. There were no bubbles and there was no need for a stunt double. The only real issue for Hannah was the lobster scene. Remember that one? Where Madison bites straight into a lobster, shell and everything, at a fancy New York restaurant. Well, here's the thing. Hannah had been a vegetarian for 13 years, and biting into an actual lobster was a no-go. So they fashioned one out of pastry, but it didn't look realistic. So they stuffed a real lobster shell with leeks and mashed potatoes. And to this day, Daryl Hannah can't so much as look at a leak. On March 9th, 1984, seven years after Grazer came up with the idea in his windowless office, Splash made its way into theaters. 
Brian Grazer and Ron Howard continued their tradition of driving around to movie theaters, hoping for lines. But this time, they brought their families and rented a limousine. One year earlier, Steven Spielberg's E.T. had come out, and they'd heard that the opening day lineup at the Avco Cinema on Wilshire Boulevard had stretched around the block. So they drove over to that theater on the day of their release, and the line for Splash was also around the block. Grazer said, not quite as long as E.T., but it was still incredible. People came out in droves to see the Mermaid movie that nearly every studio in Los Angeles told them would never sell tickets. And it was in that moment, staring at the lineup, that Grazer says he realized he was successful. The pair jumped out of their limo and walked from the front of the line all the way to the back, talking to moviegoers and hugging each other. At the 1985 Academy Awards, Grazer, Gans, and Mendel were nominated for Best Screenplay. Tom Hanks and Daryl Hannah became megastars. And that same year, Ron Howard and Brian Grazer founded their own production company called Imagine Entertainment. It would become one of the most successful, most respected film companies in history and solidify a Hollywood partnership that's among the most enduring of all time. 35 years and counting. And it all came down to the superpower Grandma Sonia spotted in Grazer all those years ago. And a fish-out-of-water story that really made a splash. Everybody has a superpower. When you look at the people around you and you objectively analyze them, you realize that each one of them is very good at something. Brian Grazer's superpower was curiosity. While none of his teachers recognized it, his grandmother did. She saw it and encouraged it. And that encouragement would eventually change Grazer's life. He came to realize his curiosity was a skill that could overcome his dyslexia, that his natural curiosity with people could lead to connections, that it could even open big doors to Warren Beatty and Lou Wasserman. And his curiosity led him to meet Ron Howard and co-found Imagine Entertainment, one of the longest-running partnerships in Hollywood history. You may already know what your superpower is. But if not, ask the people around you. They'll know. Because it's the thing that stands out most about you. It may even be the thing your rivals hate most about you. A superpower is not just the fuel source for your ambition. It's also the machete that cuts through the tall grass of a project, or even a career. When Grazer's idea for Splash is rejected over and over and over again, his curiosity saves the project. As Grazer so wisely says, there is a lot of information in a no. That philosophy is the main thesis in We Regret to Inform You. There is a lot of valuable information in rejection if you just drain it of its poison and look for the nugget. It's very interesting to note that Grazer says the word no is just a temporary point of view. He has movies in development that were rejected five times by the same executives who finally bought them. Imagine has won 47 Emmys and 10 Oscars for TV series like 24, Empire and Arrested Development, and films that include Apollo 13, The Da Vinci Code, and A Beautiful Mind. And by the way, that other mermaid movie with Warren Beatty never got made, proving that David should never be intimidated by a Goliath. For the past 35 years, Brian Grazer has made it a point to have lunch with one new person every two weeks. There's only one criterion. 
those new people can't be in the entertainment field. He calls those meetings curiosity conversations. So, what's your superpower? Never, ever give up. Flash. Box office earnings, $70 million. Academy Award nominations, 1. Golden Globe nominations, 1. Number of Americans named Madison before 1984, next to none. Number of Americans named Madison after 1984, 320,000. The Rejection Podcast is an apostrophe podcast production and is recorded in an Airstream mobile recording studio. We regret to inform you that this series is hosted and written by me, Sydney O'Reilly. Director, Callie O'Reilly. Engineer, Keith Oman. Producer, Debbie O'Reilly. Theme music by Ian Lefevre and Ari Posner. Major sources for this episode are listed in the show notes on our website, apostrophepodcasts.ca slash rejection. Follow us on social at apostrophe pod. Rate and review this podcast wherever you like to listen. And while you're there, let us know of any rejection stories you'd like to hear. This series is executive produced by Terry O'Reilly. See you next time. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Are you a reality TV junkie? Do you ever think, dang, I wish I had someone to talk to about all the trash TV that I watch? Well, look no further, garbage lover, because Reality Gaze is a podcast for you. Hello, I'm Maddie. And I'm Poodle, and we're the Reality Gaze. We talk about all your favorite unscripted shows like The Golden Bachelor, Love is Blind, and TLC's big, messy behemoth, 90 Day Fiance. And if you're driving to work, folding laundry, or just pretending to listen to your husband talk about sports, just put on the pod, and you've instantly got two gay besties spilling all the tea and reading these people for filth. So come at us, y'all. Find Reality Gaze wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>